warm welcome to this breakfast uh, meeting and uh, it's particularly warm welcome to our guest of honor today, um, Minister Simon Birmingham uh, from Australia. Thank you so much for uh, getting up early today and, uh, and coming here uh, to share with us um, uh, your views and Australia's views, of, obviously, on the EU-Australia uh, trade agreement and more broadly on the global trading system. Uh, as I tend to say, five years ago, we all thought sort of trade policy was rather a dull subject, but that has really changed fundamentally, and it has really become a front-page news item. And of course, the EU has um, tried to, to foster a number of trade agreements and has actually signed a number of trade agreements already and is in the process of negotiating, as it is currently with Australia. And so I think we will all uh, very much be thrilled to hear the Australian perspective of this. And following your presentation, um, our senior fellow, uh, Professor Andres Zapir, uh, will uh, give a few comments. And I'm sure I will not be able to hold back. And then we perhaps we have one or two minutes then also for, uh, for questions with the audience. So again, a very warm welcome. And thank you for being here this morning. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Wolf, for uh, that introduction uh, to, uh, indeed, Professor Sapir, to uh, all those here at the Bruegel Institute. Thank you for the opportunity to join with you. Uh, can I acknowledge uh, Justin Brown, uh, Australia's ambassador to the European Union, distinguished guests, one and all. I'm very grateful to Bruegel for inviting me here today to have this opportunity in my first visit as Australia's Minister for Trade, Tourism and Investment to share some thoughts with such an esteemed and thoughtful audience. The 18th century was a turning point for Australia. European exploration across the South Pacific, in particular of the east coast of our great southern land, ultimately led to European settlement. Successive waves of migrants from across Europe and around the world have joined with the first Indigenous Australians to build our modern nation. Our journey has not been without some mistakes, but the story of modern Australia is one of amazing success. Without civil war or major conflict, Australia today stands tall as an independent and principled nation, the 13th largest global economy, despite having only the 53rd largest populace. Australians enjoy a way of life, the envy of many, and our global influence reaches beyond the economic as a leader in diplomatic, defence, cultural and other spheres. The 18th century was also critical for Australia as, back here in Europe, the Age of Enlightenment evolved. Principles born in Europe of the Enlightenment, espousing the ideals of liberty, tolerance, constitutional government and the separation of church and state have been central to our growth and success as a young, modern nation. Economic liberty, forged through effective trade relations with the world, has been a central feature of our latter-day success. It is with this in mind that today I specifically want to touch on two related issues. Firstly, the need for the European Union and Australia to work hand-in-hand -hand to strengthen the international rules-based trading system that has enabled liberty and the advancement of human prosperity. And secondly, the importance of the Australia, EU, free trade agreement negotiations, an opportunity again to enhance liberty and prosperity, including as a mechanism to help 
protect those international rules. Trade and trade agreements are increasingly being negatively and unfairly portrayed in many countries as a convenient excuse for many economic and social problems. Defying evidence to the contrary, some wish to retreat inwards, yearning for a mythical, non-existent era when prosperity was apparently greater. Many governments face populist forces, or even some reflect those populist forces, and they question the benefits of trade and globalisation and press for a retreat to protectionism. In doing so, they oversimplify an international economy that is anything but simple. And they jeopardise the integrity of the rules-based multilateral trading system, which Australia and Europe have worked hard to develop over the past 70 years. It is a system built from our shared commitment to the rule of law, to global norms and to free and open markets. It is a system that has helped economies all over the world flourish, key amongst them being Australia. Australia unequivocally sees open trade and investment policies as essential for growth rather than as a threat. Now, of course, parts of Australia have faced challenges from economic reform, including from trade liberalisation. But on the whole, those tough decisions made have paid off, as most recently demonstrated by the fact that Australia has recorded some 27 consecutive years of uninterrupted economic growth. There is no accident or coincidence in this. Our commitment to free trade has helped to drive that economic growth. Australia's geographic isolation and relatively small domestic market means that trade and investment have always loomed large in our economy, especially as an exporter of natural resources. From what was a protected economy in the 1970s, we've internationalised our economy to the point where today it is among the most open in the world. The positive consequences for our people are meaningful, with Australian household incomes estimated to be some $8,500 per annum higher as a result of trade liberalisation. We have, over our period of liberalisation, more than doubled the number of Australians employed, with jobs growth comfortably outstripping population growth, we've kept unemployment low, even lower, and come close to doubling our real GDP per capita. This private sector economic success generates the tax revenue and income used to support our investment in health and education services and to maintain a strong social safety net. Because markets themselves are a theoretical construct, what matters are the benefits of this economic success, the benefits that yield opportunities for the quality of life created for people across our nations. The fact that our thriving trade performance has contributed to our economic growth is no accident nor coincidence. It is a determined strategy. This is why we as a government will continue to pursue a trade agenda that opens new markets for Australian businesses, farmers and exporters, to be able to sell their goods and services to the world. And in doing so, to contribute to a strong economy that generates new jobs and more opportunities for Australians and for our trading partners. Despite the objection and opposition of others, our government will continue to progress this agenda. Over the past five years, we have concluded ambitious free trade agreements with China, Japan and the Republic of Korea, as well as the comprehensive and progressive agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership, 
otherwise known as the TPP-11. We have updated existing agreements, are at various stages of signing or implementing a series of new agreements, and have a full program of live negotiations, including, of course, with the EU. Australia now has FTAs with seven of our eight top export markets for goods and services. Six years ago, Australia had duty-free or preferential access to markets representing around one quarter of our goods and services trade. Today, we have signed agreements with countries that account for nearly 70% of our trade. And once we conclude negotiations currently underway, 88% of Australia's trade will be covered by free trade agreements. Our strategy is to deliberately and purposefully use FTAs and WTO negotiations to continue to open markets and provide our consumers, exporters and farmers with new opportunities and choices. And the Australia-EU FTA will be a big part of our goal to expand our network of agreements to ensure that we have FTAs with countries that do account for over 80% of our trade. TPP-11 ranks as one of the most important global trade agreements concluded since the end of the Uruguay round. When it entered into force on 30 December last year, the TPP-11 offered our exporters two tariff cuts in short order. And while some would have walked away from negotiations when the US decided to withdraw, I'm proud that despite the objections and opposition of some abroad and at home, Australia, Japan and others buckled down to get this agreement across the line. This is a reflection of the support of the 11 members of the TPP for an international trading system that is rules-based and market-oriented and characterised by high standards and high ambition. Which brings me to the World Trade Organisation, which is and remains fundamental to our trade interests. Australia sees the WTO as essential to effective global trade governance and in promoting growth and development, providing the certainty and surety for business to invest, to take risks, to move to other markets. The WTO is not perfect. There are some very substantial weaknesses in the WTO system. However, an alternative of no rules, no transparency and no dispute resolution processes is no alternative at all. Instead, we are committed to dialogue to achieve consensus on change, to address the shortcomings of the WTO by enhancing and improving the institution rather than abandoning or destroying it. There is simply no other viable alternative. Happily, Australia and the EU have been on a unity ticket on this issue. And I have been pleased to work closely with Commissioner Malmstrom to advance those reform opportunities. Australia joined with the EU and others in signing a joint communique from the Ottawa Ministerial on WTO reform held in October. This made clear our mutual support for the international rules-based trading order, as well as our agreed ambitions to improve and strengthen it. We have co-sponsored an EU proposal, as well as initiating our own, on reform of the WTO's dispute settlement system. And we have also supported the proposal from the US, Japan and the EU to enhance transparency measures in the WTO. On the negotiating side of the WTO, Australia has been at the forefront of efforts in the WTO to launch negotiations to establish new, modern WTO rules on e-commerce. This is important to show that the WTO is an organisation 
for the future as well as fit for the present. We have appreciated the EU's support and close engagement on this initiative. These collectively represent important steps in the right direction. We don't underestimate the scale of the challenge though in finding common ground across the diversity of the WTO membership, but we are committed to working with our close partners, such as the EU, to build that support. The conclusion of TPP 11 and the Japan-EU FTA, for example, represent a welcome reinforcement of support for trade liberalisation and reform. Domestically, each successful agreement is a way to demonstrate the benefits of trade and investment and to counter the narrative of protectionism. It is for you across the EU member states as it is for us at home in Australia. And to quote Commissioner Malmström during her visit to Australia for the launch of our FTA negotiations in June last year, economic interests aside, this is also important because trade agreements are also linking people together. It's sending a strong signal today that we are like-minded partners, we are coming together. I look forward to meeting with Commissioner Malmström again later this morning to work on the pathway forward for our Australia-EU deal, which can again send such a strong signal, not just for the benefits of trade, but of our broader like-minded partnership. An ambitious and comprehensive Australia-EU FTA will also provide a major demonstration of our mutual confidence in the longevity and future of rules-based trade. More than that, I hope it will be an opportunity to craft new rules, perhaps with the potential for multilateral application. Good progress is being made in the negotiations since they were launched last June. Our respective leaders agreed at November's G20 summit to seek to accelerate progress on the FTA. And we will be working hard to try to realise that objective, the objective for a comprehensive and ambitious FTA resolved as quickly as possible. As it stands today, two-way trade between Australia and the EU is marked by strength. It delivers tangible outcomes to both sides by way of jobs and economic growth. This FTA will be a chance and an opportunity to enhance that relationship. For example, we want to create certainty and opportunity in key services sectors such as education and finance, as well as promoting growth in new areas to support the digital economy. As a bloc, the EU28 is Australia's second largest trading partner and biggest two-way investment partner. Brexit, should it occur, will not alter the importance of the relationship. The EU27 would still be Australia's second largest trading partner. While Europe enjoys our gold, oil seeds and wines, Australia is equally the seventh largest market for European motor vehicle exports and is also a steadily growing market for EU wine. We're the fourth largest destination for EU cheese and curd exports. Now, without doubt, I expect agriculture to be a prominent and complex issue in negotiations. It's important to understand, though, Australia's existing access to EU agricultural markets is actually very limited. It is far below that of New Zealand, for example, who are also undertaking separate FTA negotiations. And our access may well shrink further in a post-Brexit environment. Separate to the FTA negotiations, an important focus for this visit will be to defend even some of our existing access to the EU market. 
Australian farmers are understandably concerned at the prospect of any actions that will have a negative impact on their export interests in the EU. Australian views are well known on the importance we attach to the existing high quality hormone free beef quota and I intend to reinforce that in my meetings today. Substantial dilution of this access would run counter to the ambitions we claim to share for our FTA negotiations. Put simply, reducing access in a key existing market is no place to start negotiations of an FTA. Nonetheless, these issues are far from insurmountable and I believe we're on the cusp of a new positive era in deeper, richer Australia-EU trade, trade relations. We do not underestimate the challenges, but are ever mindful of the benefits the Australian economy has enjoyed as a result of international trade and the global examples of such benefits being realised. There are clearly tangible potential benefits for both sides in the Australia-EU FTA negotiations, and that augurs well for successful outcomes to those negotiations. Through our continued work together on WTO reform and progress together of the Australia-EU FTA, I am confident that we can continue to protect and strengthen the case for liberal open markets underpinned by the international rules-based system. Together, Australia and the EU are exemplars for the rest of the world and will, I trust, live up to those expectations once again. Thank you very much for the honour and the chance to be with you this morning. I look forward to our engagement and questions. Great. Th thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so let me floor, give the floor to, to Thank you. Add a few comments and remarks. Yes. <coughs> thank you very much uh, for the uh, for the speech, for the inspiring speech, uh, I should say. Um, I would uh, start by uh, agreeing with you, and uh, I think I will agree uh, almost entirely with what you said. But uh, I will start by agreeing with you that um, the, um, the position uh, of Australia that you have, uh, you have outlined uh, is, has become today uh, extremely uh, close to the, uh, to the European position. We have had the, uh, the chance as well to have, uh, in this very place, uh, on several occasions, Commissioner Malmström. And uh, the words uh, that you gave could have been the words of, of Commissioner Malmström. Uh, about the importance of the rules-based uh, multilateral uh, trading system and uh, at the same time uh, about the, uh, the strategy besides Geneva and the multilateral uh, system to pursue uh, free trade agreements with uh, our main partners. And you indicated that now Australia has already uh, agreements with seven out of its eight main partners, I suppose the one that is missing is the, is the EU, right? And it's uh, being negotiated at the moment. And the EU is more or less in the same, uh, in the same situation, uh, assuming that indeed uh, it will be launching some kind of a, a discussion, free trade discussion, at least for industrial products with the, uh, with the United States. So we find ourselves in, in the same situation. Uh, we have indeed, uh, the EU has indeed negotiated agreements with, with a number of countries concluded recently with, uh, with Japan after uh, so many other uh, agreements. And I think uh, the EU position, as I said, is equally about the importance uh, of the multilateral trading system and the need to uh, reform 
uh, the system. Now, um, it's interesting you spoke at the, at the end uh, of your presentation about agriculture. And uh, being old enough, uh, uh, maybe not going back to the 18th century, uh, as you did in, in your presentation, uh, but going back to the 1980s, uh, very simply, uh, I think it would have been unthinkable uh, in those days uh, to have the launch of a free trade agreement between Australia and uh, the European Union, because agriculture would not have come at the end of your speech. It would have been the very first sentence, right? And it would have been a non-starter, uh, given the situation in Europe, given the situation in Australia. We were in a totally, totally uh, different world. So I think I'm just saying this to, to illustrate, in a sense, how the world has changed, how the world has changed, and how Australia and the European Union have changed in, uh, in this period, okay? And that, indeed, uh, now we are contemplating having an agreement where there will be some difficulties, and agriculture will be one of them, but that, I think that is uh, perfectly normal in, uh, in, those, uh, in those negotiations. So I basically want to ask you a couple of questions. Um, Rini agreed with you, and you know, continuing to agree, I, I want to, uh, to push you a, a little bit on, on Two, uh, on two elements, both on the rules-based system and on EU-Australia. Uh, first, on the rules-based system, uh, you said uh, that, uh, well, we are, we are Australia, but we, the EU as well, uh, we are for, uh, you know, we are strong defenders uh, of the rules-based system. There are joint uh, proposals that have been put forward. And I, uh, I agree with that. You said, you know, uh, the, uh, the system, however, is not perfect. One needs some reform. And you, you outlined a few uh, reforms. You did mention <coughs> the, um, the dispute settlement uh, matter. And on others, you were a bit maybe more fuzzy. Uh, you mentioned something, uh, electronic commerce. Okay, that is, that is certainly uh, welcome uh, because indeed, you know, when the WTO was, was concluded, uh, those issues were not there, and those are technological development. But I want to push you a bit on, on, on those matters. Uh, as you know better than I, um, the dispute settlement system uh, could run into great difficulty uh, by, uh, by the end of this year. Uh, so um, what is the view of Australia uh, about the preserving of the system, uh, assuming that, indeed, uh, we run into the difficulty that uh, judges uh, are not appointed, and that, indeed, therefore, uh, the system as it functions today uh, becomes dysfunctional by the end of the year. Uh, there are different uh, views out there about that, and I would, I would be very much, uh, I would very much welcome to hear uh, what is your view uh, on this matter. The second issue, uh, again to push you, is about uh, China. Uh, we have already spoken about the US because dispute settlement is clearly uh, an issue that uh, the US is, has been putting on the table and unhappiness about the way the system is functioning uh, at the moment. Uh, well, both for Australia and for the EU, China, uh, the US as well, but China has become a major a major trading partner. Uh, 
uh, probably a bit more for Australia than for the EU, but for the EU as well, a, a major, uh, major trading partner. And uh, as you know, and I suppose uh, Australia must have a position which is not entirely dissimilar uh, in the uh, disputes between the US and, and China, uh, the EU position is typically to say that, well, we do share some of the complaints from the United States uh, about China, uh, but we certainly do not share the approach uh, of the United States. We wish that those issues be discussed in a multilateral uh, framework. And if there are some rules that need to be discussed and improved, well, uh, this needs to be done in, uh, in Geneva. So I, I want to hear also your view, not just on the dispute settlement, but about the kind of issues uh, that are being raised uh, concerning China and what is, what is your view on that. And just then to conclude uh, uh, about the EU-Australia, uh, is, the, is the view that EU-Australia would be more or less like uh, EU-Canada, uh, uh, like CETA, uh, or like EU-Japan, uh, or you see, I mean, you know the, the, the structure, they are, they're, they're fairly, the two of them are fairly similar, there are some innovations in EU-Japan, uh, EU uh, but are there some innovations uh, compared to uh, EU-Canada to EU-Japan, uh, EU uh, some chapters that are not there, some issues that are not there, uh, that's from the viewpoint of Australia, uh, would be important to have. Well, thank you, and uh, that's, uh, that's quite the range of questions to, uh, to field up front, but... To, to seek to work through them in order and, uh, and as swiftly as I can. If we look at the WTO, it has essentially three key elements. Rules making, transparency and reporting, and then ultimately dispute resolution and settlement. And it does that, as I alluded to in my speech, to provide a framework that gives confidence, yes, to nation states, but also ultimately confidence to business to be able to engage, to trade, to take the risks of trade, knowing there is a framework uh, that they can do so that gives them the confidence to invest and to take those risks. Uh, we look at the fact that to, to maintain the relevance of the WTO, we ought to make sure all three of those functions are uh, appropriately tackled uh, and active. So rules making, obviously, the modernisation agenda, the e-commerce piece is critical to that. And we're adopting that in a pragmatic way, that we expect this will be a plurilateral approach. Not every nation will agree at the outset uh, to all of the terms around what e-commerce rules may look like and encompass. But that, of course, is how the WTO commenced as well. Not everybody was there at the outset uh, with all of the basic rules and clear guidelines, so we can build this up from the ground. In transparency and reporting, it's where we're supporting the tripartite approach from the EU, US and Japan uh, to try to make sure that those nations who aren't effectively fulfilling and perhaps are in some cases even deliberately avoiding fulfilling some of their transparency and reporting obligations have a greater incentive to do so, are held more to account if they don't. And then, of course, in the appellate body in dispute resolution. Yes, there is a serious threat there in terms of the ongoing operation and viability of the appellate body. Our approach, shared by the EU, shared by uh, the other countries who gathered together in Ottawa and elsewhere, is that the best way to try to address that standoff that has occurred between the US and the WTO 
is to try to engage in reform. Uh, that to simply keep saying to the US, what will it take for you to approve appointments, uh, is simply to engage in a seemingly circular argument. Better that we get on with the idea of saying, we've heard your concerns, here are some of our proposals for reform and improvement. So the types of proposals that are there are about trying to make sure uh, that decisions are made more quickly, that the process around disputes is resolved in a more efficient and effective and faster way uh, to address some of those US concerns, and to make sure that the appointments process gives everybody sufficient confidence in the independence and integrity of those members of the appellate body. Now, actually getting agreement to those reforms will take time. We will each have to make our appeals to the US on the way through to show goodwill, to unlock the appointments process to some extent, lest we reach that tipping point uh, where we no longer have the critical mass of members of the appellate body uh, to allow the WTO to function and the appellate body to function in the way that it's intended. Of course, we also have to consider contingencies. If, uh, if that process is not successful and we don't see those appointments, well then there will come times where we, the EU and others, will have to talk about what alternatives look like. But first and foremost, let's build on the model that's there. Let's see whether that is sufficient to get that engagement. And we hope and trust uh, that it will be. And certainly, I think we are unified in the appeal that Australia, the EU, many other partner nations make uh, to the US to be constructive in that process and to help us get positive outcomes. Uh, China is, of course, uh, indeed, uh, a very important nation to Australia. It's also, can I say, uh, a wonderful, amazing example of many of the principles that I spoke about in my speech. The opening up of the Chinese economy is the modern miracle of our time. By opening up and engaging with the world and trading more freely with the world, hundreds of millions of people have been lifted out of poverty. Not at the expense of other nations, but indeed we now have a global populace that is better off as a result of the reforms that have been undertaken in China to open up, to trade more, to engage with the rest of the world. And it is perhaps the most striking example in recent times of the benefits that can flow to quality of life, to standard of living for individuals through those types of economic reforms. So we ought to make sure that first and foremost with China, we focus on the positive aspects of what has been achieved and what that means for uh, people across the globe. And not just in China, but especially throughout the Asian region. However, there are obviously aspects where the Chinese economic model is confronting to the way in which we have traditionally viewed market economies operating and their engagement in trading environments. Uh, yes, your summation in a sense of uh, the fact that Australia is not without some concerns around uh, aspects of uh, of trade engagement and the business operation of, uh, of China uh, is a real one, along with the fact that, uh, that we equally have been quite concerned about the US-China trade conflict and the threats of escalation uh, and the reality that ever higher tariff barriers being imposed would be a negative for global <laughs> economic growth and for all of the rest of us in, uh, in terms of uh, the slowdown that that could potentially create. Um, our view is that there are some good examples there. TPP 11, for example, has chapters that deal and clauses that deal with state-owned enterprises, provide a model for indeed the type of standards that can be 
set in terms of addressing some of the concerns that exist. Obviously, the type of e-commerce negotiations we'll undertake may ultimately deal with some of the issues around data and technology and other concerns that, uh, that exist. Uh, our view is that discussion and dialogue is central here. Uh, we think that China uh, is an important partner for all of us for the future uh, and that China is best engaged in a thoughtful and constructive dialogue and we hope that that's what's occurring now between Washington and Beijing. Uh, we hope that we do see outcomes that don't just deal with trade issues between those two nations, but perhaps deal with some of these substantive issues. And if that's the case, uh, well then, of course, we'll be the first to applaud the outcome if it gets a positive outcome uh, for not just the bilateral relationship there, but ultimately for the rest of the world in terms of China's engagement. Um, finally, final question uh, related to our negotiations and the type of agreement uh, that we would expect to see. Every agreement is, of course, uh, a new opportunity to break new ground to ensure that it is uh, a modern, effective trade agreement. And in the case of EU-Australia agreement, uh, we embark upon it um, with a view that it ought to be ambitious and comprehensive, covering good services investment, uh, that it ought to ensure that as TPP does, it encompasses some of those areas of the modern economy around e-commerce and digital trade. Uh, I wouldn't like to, though, pigeonhole it in alignment with any one or other uh, agreement. Uh, our trade negotiators, uh, some of whom are here, would, uh, uh, would kill me if I were at this point of negotiations to say, it will be like the Japan agreement or the Canada agreement. Uh, what it will be like is the Australia agreement. Uh, and we will have to work through that uh, on our terms. But there are no doubt lessons from our very successful and active use of trade policy that we will bring to the table, as there are from the EU's successful and active use of trade policy recently, that hopefully, as I say, will line us up to uh, a wonderful example uh, for the rest of the world. Great. Uh, th thank you very much for these uh, very comprehensive answers. And I think on we have, we've covered actually quite a, quite a lot of ground, the WTO, China, uh, and uh, the agreement directly. So, so we have time for, for a few questions um, that, uh, that I'm happy to, to, to take. Uh, so there is a gentleman here um, from the Financial Times. Um, there's a mic coming. Hi, I'm Alan Beatty from the Financial Times. Um, I have a question about the US and its role in the rules-based trading system. Um, I think it's fair to say that every WTO reform proposal that's been made so far has been shot down before it's actually even got airborne. Um, I think it's also fair to say that despite the sterling work of the TPP-11 in resurrecting that agreement, the coverage of global GDP went down from, I think, just under a third to just over 10% uh, when the US left. So the question is, how far can you actually maintain and extend the rules-based trading system without the US actively engaged? And uh, is that going to require change of administration in the US? <laughs> Very kind invitations you're giving me to stray into certain areas that would be yeah, obviously inappropriate for me to do so. The obviously TPP 11 versus TPT, TPP 12 is a smaller trade zone than we would have wished for originally. That's self-evident. That's it. A different part of Australia's trade negotiations is the RCEP negotiations, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. 
that uh, would be a huge trading bloc, bringing together uh, the ASEAN nations, together with China, India, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, Korea, uh, a very substantial trading bloc if that is to be realised. And this year will be a crunch time for, uh, for that opportunity. Uh, our first preference is certainly to see the US as a constructive and engaged contributor in the WTO uh, and global trade. I don't agree that every proposal that, uh, that is being put forward uh, has simply failed to fly thus far, but I do acknowledge that there are difficulties of getting reform agreed in the WTO process and that it will take time to do so. Uh, but of course, one of, at least one of the reform proposals uh, that we have supported and the EU has supported has the US as a joint sponsor of that proposal uh, as it relates to those transparency and reporting functions. Elsewhere, we have China as a, a sponsor of other reform proposals. So we have the big players engaged in elements of those conversations. The challenge will be in Geneva to make sure that we bring them together uh, in terms of how it is uh, a successful conclusion uh, is realised. Uh, obviously, the uh, approach that the administration in the US is taking at present uh, is an aggressive one in terms of many of their bilateral postures. But equally, as I alluded to before, when it comes to the US-China dispute, firstly, we hope for a laying down of arms in relation to the threats of increased tariffs. Ideally, we hope to see removal of some of the tariffs that had been imposed to date. Thirdly, we hope that if the substantive issues that have been put on the agenda uh, around concerns about technology transfer or fair competition are addressed, they're addressed in a way that doesn't just affect the bilateral relationship, but possibly is to the benefit of all nations. And the challenge there uh, is for China equally. Uh, uh, at the China International Import Expo, we saw President Xi uh, commit to further opening of the China economy, uh, to addressing some of the concerns around IP issues. Uh, and so having made those commitments to the world, uh, we look to see that those commitments are realised in a meaningful and substantial way as well. Let's go first for the lady and then so that we try to have a bit of... <laughs> Sorry. Thank you. Good morning. Um, I'm Jo Sweep from Humane Society International. It's an animal protection NGO, which is uh, we're working here in, uh, in the EU, but also in Australia. Um, I have two questions for you. Um, the EU is very keen on values-based trade. Um, and one of the issues that's very high on uh, the EU's agenda with regard to its current trade agreements, the new generation trade agreements, is uh, trade and sustainable development. The uh, chapter that was included, the environment chapter that was included in the TPP 11 was one of the most uh, forward thinking that we've seen so far anywhere in the world with regard to the protection of species. Um, my first question is relating to that, whether you're going to have the same level of ambition and using those as a benchmark, because currently the templates that the EU are using are actually lower in terms of protections that are being offered for certainly wildlife protection. The second question I have relates to animal welfare. Um, thus far, as far as I've been able to see studying the Australian trade agreements, animal welfare hasn't been included. Um, however, it's a very important issue for EU citizens 
it's an issue that's actually, uh, it's a key value that's incorporated into our uh, treaty and the functioning of the European Union. Uh, at present, um, the EU has a higher level of animal welfare standards than Australia. And the question is, um, how do you intend to approach that issue within the agreement? Okay, thank you, thank you very much. If you don't mind, let's collect a few questions okay. because I sure. see that there's lots of hands up. So I had the, the gentleman here who just didn't get the mic. Hi, my name is Thomas Lividini. I work for an agency called Landmark Public Affairs, and I'm here speaking on behalf of the U.S. Dairy Export Council. My comment concerns geographical indications. In the Australian dairy sector uh, surely agrees uh, with us that GIs are not a problem as such, but uh, what we oppose is the, um, the policy of the EU of throwing back uh, a number of names, common food names that have uh, a long history of being produced all over the world, including in Australia. Please come to the question. So, okay, well, basically, my question is, what are your expectations with regards to geographical indications in the, um, in the negotiations? And obviously, okay. from our vantage point, we hope that Australia will uh, uphold the, the rights of producers of common food names. Thanks. Okay. So then I have a gentleman there in the back. Um, yeah, I can speak up as well. Uh, I'm we, for the live stream, we need the mic. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I'm Moritz Brooking, representing the Critical Raw Materials Alliance. Um, thank you for a clear speech. Uh, you re represent one of the leading uh, producing countries of raw materials. So my question is, what are your views on the EU-Australia relations on raw materials, and particularly on critical raw materials such as uh, uh, cobalt, niobium, rare earth, and so on? Thank you. Okay. Philip, <coughs> sorry, Philip Langers of Reuters. One of the last things that you mentioned in your speech was hormone-free beef and your wish to defend sort of Australia's share of it. Obviously, the EU is in discussions with the United States about giving it a bigger share of that pie. Uh, if it gets a bigger share of the pie, presumably the other countries, and obviously Australia is one of those other countries, I think Uruguay is the other one, would get a smaller share. Can you just uh, tell us whether you've had discussions with the EU and whether you are willing to accept a smaller share. Thank you, thank you. Let me see whether there is in the back any question. Um, otherwise, there, there is a... Uh, okay, so then here in the middle, the, the young gentleman, and then uh, here in front. So lots thank of you. interest. Um, I'm Harry Wells from Digital Europe. Um, you mentioned in your speech about the digital economy um, and I was wondering if you had any updates or sort of if you could explain the current situation on the issue of data flows um, and e-commerce, particularly in yeah, relation to right. Australia's uh, adequacy position. Um, thank you. Thank you. And can you just pass the mic to uh, the gentleman in front? Kurt Geisert, Backbone Consulting in Germany. You mentioned EU27. Do you look forward to a trade agreement with the United Kingdom? <laughs> Will there be a revival of the Commonwealth? Thank you. I'm glad you asked that question because otherwise I would have had to ask it. So, so I think that gives you enough enough food. But uh, that, that 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 certainly gives plenty of issues. So I'll um, I'll seek to again address them sequentially and uh, and hopefully uh, hopefully fairly briefly. In terms of um, uh, environmental standards, uh, uh, Australia perhaps as a function of our relative youth as a nation has an incredible rich biodiversity that uh, that we uh, seek to protect. Uh, protect actively in, uh, in terms of 
our own environmental laws and, uh, uh, and of course there are certain protections that we uh, apply there in terms of movement of, uh, of goods and people uh, to ensure that protection of, uh, of that biodiversity. Um, the extent to which, whether it's TPP uh, clauses uh, or other factors in relation to environmental protection and biodiversity conservation are reflected in future trade agreements, they, they will be matters for negotiation. Of course, uh, at its starting point, uh, trade agreements are about access to goods, services, investment flow, uh, but equally as, uh, as I highlighted in terms of the uh, comments that Commissioner Malmstrom made in Australia, uh, there is an opportunity there as well for shared value statements around uh, standards and aspirations that, uh, uh, that come out of such trade agreements and, uh, and the highlighting of the commonality there. Uh, in relation to, uh, to animal welfare uh, issues, uh, Australia thinks that we have uh, quite a positive story to sell there, albeit different compared to other parts of the world. Uh, oftentimes there are discussions raised about questions such as uh, indeed uh, uh, live animal exports. Uh, but Australia's work in that space uh, has raised the bar for many other nations in terms of the way live animal shipments occur. Uh, yes, we come from a part of the world where there are long transfers required, but that's why we put in place standards uh, around the type of conditions, both in terms of shipment, but also then processing in markets. And those types of conditions are uh, world leading and providing benchmarks that we hope others in that sector uh, pursue. Uh, the next uh, question related to, uh, to GIs. Um, didn't think that I would get to, uh, in and out without having a discussion about GIs. Um, I won't seek to put, to put words uh, into the mouths of the Australian dairy sector. They will speak for themselves, but they uh, do certainly harbour concerns about some of the proposals that, uh, that exist. And we have a history, though, of successfully working through some of these issues with the EU. Uh, our wine sector has now a long-standing uh, agreement in place with the EU that, uh, that a number of years ago resolved a number of issues around GIs between uh, Australia and the EU, and uh, our industry successfully adapted and has, uh, and has grown uh, enormously since then in terms of its standing uh, and ability to export to the world. I'm sure we can address these issues, but GIs are a difficult issue for Australia. There are parts of, uh, of the Australian agricultural sector who have concerns there. And if we are to successfully progress those issues, as with any difficult issues in a trade agreement negotiations, we will have to work together to jointly address difficult issues, not just wait for one country to do the heavy lifting on what's hard for them, and then perhaps have a response. So issues such as the scale of market access uh, and to what extent we can bring down some of the trade barriers that exist into the EU are important for Australia in terms of how we then explain to our domestic industry, our agricultural stakeholders, why it is that they need to consider some of the EU demands when it comes to matters such as GIs. Um, to uh, to uh, raw materials, just, uh, just late last year, uh, our government released uh, a strategy uh, relating to the lithium uh, industry and the opportunities for uh, not just uh, mining of but also greater processing uh, and utilisation of lithium as part of uh, Australia's uh, uh, overall industry posture. Uh, certainly raw, uh, certainly um, some of those critical raw materials uh, are very important in terms of uh, the modern economy, the use in various technologies uh, and the fact that there are 
limited numbers of places in the, in the world uh, where they are found, found in sufficient quantities to be able to be economic to extract, uh, and they are important to many industries here in the EU. Uh, we think this will be an ongoing area uh, for engagement, whether or not it's part of FTA, but certainly in terms of economic engagement in seizing the opportunity to partner uh, with those countries who are dependent upon uh, some of those critical minerals and to make sure that, uh, that we have a strong partnership in terms of Australia, well known for decades now as a reliable, dependable, safe place to be able to get some of those uh, traditional mineral resources. Now we'll be able to, of course, look to that in terms of those uh, limited critical mineral resources as well in, the, in such sectors. Um, to, uh, to hormone-free beef, uh, nowhere not of a mind to, uh, to want to say that a smaller share is, uh, is okay at present. As I, uh, as I indicated in my remarks uh, there, to uh, think that we are still a relatively early stage of free trade agreement negotiations, start those negotiations by somewhere else in a separate part of the bilateral relationship by losing uh, a key area of market access is not really a, a good place to be in. So uh, I will be, uh, both with Commissioner Malmstrom but also Commissioner Hogan uh, today, making the strong case that Australia uh, needs, to, uh, needs to see a responsible approach from the EU in relation to uh, high quality beef exports, uh, that we do want to, uh, to see an outcome uh, that in the negotiations that we know are happening with the United States that is WTO compliant, uh, and, that, uh, and that we look forward to full and thorough consultation with us in terms of what that final outcome looks like. Uh, of course, ultimately, down the track, success in FTA negotiations uh, may well provide better, and we hope will provide, better long-term access in terms of that market. But the transitional period is critically important to us, and we do have to make sure that... Uh, that Australian producers who have invested significantly to meet the high standards set by the EU market are not now disadvantaged by losing that market access and therefore uh, having their investment wasted in, uh, in that sense. Uh, in, terms of, uh, in terms of some of the uh, e-commerce digital trade provision, particularly the question related to uh, data flows, uh, well, uh, Australia's position has been clear and we are advocating strongly for minimalist uh, regulation when it comes to uh, the flow of data, the storage of data. Uh, we believe in a modern economy. Uh, data, of course, is a central part uh, of business making, business decisions, uh, and a new wave of regulation that seeks to uh, tie businesses up with constraints around how data flows or where data is stored is effectively a new form of protectionism. Uh, and, uh, and we will be working hard, whether it's with the EU or elsewhere in our relations, uh, to encourage people to uh, view the free flow of data as essential to maximising future economic prospects. And lastly... Brexit. Brexit. <laughs> Are we done? Um, <laughs> Brexit. Uh, I uh, came from London yesterday. I'm not going to be foolish enough or silly enough to try to make any predictions as to, uh, as to how Brexit uh, will unfold. The question, of course, was does Australia look to a free trade agreement with the UK? 
Yes, if Brexit ensues, uh, we do. Uh, we've made that very clear publicly. Uh, it doesn't change, as I said, the importance that we place upon uh, our negotiations that are already underway with the EU, uh, which whether the EU is 27 or 28 member states uh, is still our second largest trading partner. So we want to see the deal done with the EU. I've described it in many ways as a, as a belt and braces approach that we're taking. If for some reason Brexit doesn't proceed or the UK stays within the customs union or whatever occurs there, well, of course, our EU negotiations will encompass the UK. If the UK does leave, uh, well, then naturally enough, uh, we will have our own separate process of negotiating with the UK, just as the EU will have your process of negotiating whatever those future terms are uh, with the UK. Um, that is for them and their system as to what the end outcome is. Um, there are clearly transitional issues, some of which are of concern to us around what the consequences of, uh, of Brexit uh, may be. Many Australian businesses uh, operate within the UK in terms of their business engagement with the EU or vice versa uh, and impediments to that will be difficult for them. Uh, and as I alluded to in my remarks, the splitting of tariff rate quotas is equally a concern in terms of leaving a diminished value of market access in both the EU and the UK at the end of that process and, uh, and we're not convinced uh, that the methodology and data is available for that to be an accurate split and even if it is, it does then leave potentially market access that is uneconomic in a number of those cases. So uh, for the long term, FTAs are important there, uh, but in the transition phase, uh, we have some real issues that, uh, that need to be addressed. And, uh, and of course, if Brexit were to happen on March 29, those issues become much, much more acute for everybody. Well, well thank you. I, I think we have uh, probably not really time anymore for, for a question, but, but let me perhaps add one last remark on, on the data slash Brexit issue, because the, the two, I mean, they, there is actually a link in one dimension, which is um, that uh, once the UK has left the European Union, it will actually have to agree on a data exchange with the European Union, otherwise um, uh, data flow from the EU to the UK will be severely limited and severely restricted. We would have to have some agreement of the form of um, privacy shield that we have currently with the United States to allow uh, firms to actually s physically s uh, um, uh, store data, data in the UK and exchange data on both sides. Um, and that includes uh, questions of, of privacy, but also questions of um, intelligence and so on and so forth. And I think one of the interesting agreements uh, in, in the EU-Japan, there's a significant part on it, and we have actually quite a free flow, uh, I mean, uh, an unprecedented high level of free flow of data uh, because of mutual trust, because of high standards, because of mutual agreements. So, so I'm sure this issue will be quite prominent also in the EU-Australia agreement, and it will be impacted by Brexit because, you know, once Brexit is out of this, um, all these global firms, where will they be able to, to serve, uh, to, to store their data? Will it be in London? Uh, or will it be only on the EU continent, EU continent and Australia? So I think that's just one aspect of the very complex issue that we are looking at uh, with Brexit. Um, uh, well, but as you rightly, I think, point out uh, how it will turn out, I think it's anybody's guess at this stage. Um, uh, and we are all looking, looking at this, of course, very, very closely.
Okay, so, so let, me, let me thank you very much for coming here today and for sharing your time, time with us today for this open discussion and for answering all the questions um, uh, so comprehensively. It was great to have you. Thank you very much, and good luck with the negotiations with C3 and Armstrong. Thank you very thank much. You. Thank you.